Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Greetings, my friends, patriots, lovers of democracy, truth, and justice, believers in freedom and the American way, Tom Hartman. Uh, say what? Oh, fix my microphone. Hang on just a second here. Mute it. Okay. Now, now do I sound better? Indeed. Okay. Yeah. Sorry. My microphone had fallen off. All righty. Congressman Mark Pocan is with us on the line today. He's, it's our Middays with Mark hour. Uh, taking your calls at 202-808-9925, uh, whatever you would like to talk with Congressman Pocan about. He is, of course, the co-chair of the Congressional Progressive Caucus, represents the 2nd District of Wisconsin. Website, pocan.house.gov. You can tweet him at rep, R-E-P, as in representative, rep, Mark, M-A-R-K, Pocan, P-O-C-A-N. And Congressman Pocan, welcome back. I'm glad to be here. Great to have you with us. So uh, how, you know, it is, uh, you know, Congress is out, so it's officially town hall time. How's that going for the Republicans and how's that going for you? <laughs> I'll tell you, uh, you know, the Republicans are um, doing their best to avoid interacting with their constituents this month. Uh, and we're seeing with a few instances where they've had town halls, we're watching amazing reactions from people, right? I mean, they're really taking the task on a multitude of subjects, but I think healthcare still being, you know, in the forefront. But, you know, this is uh, what our jobs are, right? You take, uh, you have town halls, you talk to people, whether they agree with you or not, you don't just have private town halls or telephone town halls where you screen the questions or uh, anything else. You actually got to meet with your constituents. And, you know, I'm, today I'm calling you from uh, Beloit, Wisconsin, at the southern tip of my district in Rock County, a county I happen to split with, Paul Ryan. And uh, Paul now has gone over 600 and I think it's 74 days now uh, without a public town hall. And uh, they're starting to put billboards up. They're really starting to put some pressure on him locally, just, you know, grassroots grown hmm. because he won't have a conversation with his constituents. So I think we're seeing a lot of that around the country right now. That's remarkable. And uh, uh, also, I'm, 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 I, I just unlocked our phone lines, by the way, if people want to call in. I'm sorry they, they had been locked out. Um, so, uh, the number is 202-808-9925. I'm, uh, yesterday the, uh, president, uh, in Donald Trump dropped a, a bombshell on us and the world. I have no 
specific recollection other than Harry Truman after he had already dropped the first nuclear bomb right. on Japan, even making a reference to uh, nuclear annihilation. Um, and certainly that, uh, you know, that was a threat, but it was a threat that he not only was prepared to follow through on, but about four days later, he dropped the second bomb. Um, uh, I, I was just blown away by this. I, I'm curious, A, your response, and B, that of your colleagues. You know, I have said um, dozens and dozens of times when people ask me about Donald Trump, I'll say, you know, for in a lot of ways, we have checks and balances in the system. And generally, it's the stuff he says and puts out there that's not going to happen versus the stuff I worry about. Sometimes he just decrees something by tweet and it gets out there. This is the one exception I've always said. My biggest worry is that at 4 a.m. he gets up and he sends out some tweet uh, that sets off Kim Jong-un because it's a little hard to put the genie back in the bottle. And what he did in those comments, as you said, were so unbelievably belligerent, ignorant. Um, I, I can't even express enough words to describe how dangerous what he did was, and then when you have to have his Secretary of State and his um, ambassador to the UN all trying to reel back the comments, you can't have the commander-in-chief without the respect of anyone in the country or even the people he works with to say something as wrong and idiotic as he did. And, you know, the fact that um, I just can't help to, to understand that as his polls drop to 33 percent, 30, I think I heard one was 32 percent today, that when you start seeing these actions, we've seen this movie trailer before. Um, I am hoping that he is not, you know, doing something incredibly stupid for him, his own self. Uh, rather than uh, addressing the way we need to address this, which is obviously, you know, our partners in the Chinese have to be uh, the major players in trying to make sure we get North Korea to do something right. And let's face it, the U.N. just voted that way, right? We're moving things forward in the right way. What he did was absolutely irresponsible for anyone who's in the White House. And um, I, I honestly think this may be the worst thing yet I've seen out of this administration. Isn't it ironic that America First was the slogan of the Lindbergh crowd in the late 30s, uh, early 40s, who did not want us to go to war against World War II, and now his uh, America First could be the thing that starts World War III? I, I just, uh, maybe I'm being hyperbolic, uh, you know, uh, but it just, it, it just shocks me. Well, I, I not only listened to his words and I watched the video, but, you know, this, he almost looked down as if he was trying to, you know, read something that he must have jotted down about this and how he mm -hmm. said it and he even screwed it up the second time, which, you know, we've come to expect. But it was, those are, you, you can't say those kind of words unless you're really, really serious or you diminish the military in this country. And then, you know, by tweeting this morning, saying that he's already improved uh, the nuclear arsenal, um, that's an outright lie. I've been listening to general after general this morning say, well, that's not actually true. And, you know, when he diminishes our credibility as a country, especially with someone as unstable as Kim Jong-un has been as a leader, um, this just puts our entire nation and everyone who uh, very honorably uh, works to defend this country and the military at risk. And it's just the opposite of what a president is supposed to be about. And again, I, I think this one is really, for me, the rock bottom I've seen yet out of Donald Trump. Now, the, the spin machine over at Fox News is uh, processing, and on right-wing Hey Radio, is processing this as Oh, finally, we've got a president who will talk tough to dictators. You know, diplomacy hasn't worked for eight, 10, 12 years. It's time to take names and kick ass. And that's what Bush, or that's what, uh, 
That's what Trump is doing, and, and we should all be proud of him. Yeah, promising to drop nukes is not in that category. I mean, yeah. you know, this should be the rock bottom then for Fox and those people, too, trying to spin this, because at some point, you know, uh, this is Paul Ryan, too. I mean, one of the things I think is important, if I can just add, Tom, is, you know, when we got a vote, a bipartisan vote in the Appropriations Committee for Barbara Lee's um, b- proposal to uh, reauthorize, you know, give a new authorization for war, the new AMF, um, and uh, Paul Ryan single-handedly took it out of the bill that proceeded to the floor, Paul Ryan is also complicit, you know, because if you give the keys to the nuclear arsenal to someone who appears to not be stable on multiple levels, like Donald Trump is proving more and more to be, and especially with his comments, then someone like Paul Ryan, who's supposed to be an adult, shows that he's part of the problem. And we have to make sure Congress takes another look at that AUMF AUMF, uh, reauthorization. Yeah. I'd, I'd like to see an actual declaration of war if we're going to be using military forces. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, this is just, you know, this uh, incrementalism that we've had going on, well, arguably since the 50s, in a big way since Vietnam. Uh, you'd think we would have learned our lesson. Anyhow, we'll pick up your phone calls in just a moment here. Congressman Mark Pocan, uh, the co-chair of the Congressional Progressive Caucus. It's our Middays with Mark segment. They'll be taking your calls right after this. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Back with your calls for Congressman Mark Pocan uh, for the hour right after this. And welcome back. Congressman Pocan, you're still with us? I am. Okay, let's see here. Uh, let me get a, a tune-in radio. Here we go. Rob in uh, Arizona. Hey, Rob, you're on the air with Congressman Pocan. Oh, thank you. Uh, hey, Mr. Po- uh, uh, Congressman Pocan, um, I've got an idea. You know, since the Republicans are fighting, you know, illegal voting, which doesn't exist, we should compact fake news. And one idea I had to do that is maybe have the FCC come up with the Truth in News and Information Doctrine. And this would be completely voluntary for all news and, you know, information outlets to subscribe to. And it's basically an emblem they would put on the beginning of their show to say that they comply with the truth and information doctrine, which is nothing more than just good journalism to find. And basically, if they violate that, they could be fined for, you know, uh, violating the doctrine. And anyone who uses that emblem who is not, you know, part of the membership could also be fined. And it's just a way of combating fake news. You know, I I think already, you know, part of the the journalism ethics and standards we have should do some of that. I, I totally understand what you're saying. I guess my fear would be anyone in this that has any connection to this administration or any oversight in this administration putting a, a definition of news could be a little bit dangerous. Um, but we, we've you know, got to... I'm a journalism major, right? I mean, I respect the profession. And when I watch what Donald Trump is doing, I mean, this is all so Orwellian, right? Trying to rewrite basic concepts of how we think. And, you know, he's still got 32% right now, people thinking uh, what he's saying is correct, although it's it's diminishing on a regular basis. But I, I totally agree that there there should be some way that we can try to put this out there. I think the one thing I'd say is every time I've seen an attack like this in the past, whether it be against the LGBT community or um, immigrants or anyone else, they go too far and we wind up winning in the end that people will understand the definition and the value of journalism and what it provides society and why you need that fourth estate uh, to be there for us. And I I think that um, we we need to figure something out. And I, I like the thought that you're at least trying to come up with an idea. I just don't know if I want government touching it. Yeah, this is this is one of those areas where, uh, you know, the whole conservative hysteria about government actually, I mean, you know, we need to 
have a conversation about this in the context of an understanding of civics, that, yeah, government does have the power to imprison people, uh, has the power to kill people. And that's a, a very, very substantial power. It needs to be taken very seriously. And before you apply that power, you make sure that that it's absolutely necessary. And, 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 and yeah, if, 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 the, if, if I was being defined, you know, if I was being told what I had to say based on whichever administration was in power, I'd have some real problems with that, Congressman. Right. So, um, but, I, but I appreciate that Rob is trying to think how we get to this issue, right? Because we right. don't want generations to suddenly, you know, who, hearing this that, you know, they're, they're doing this Orwellian reworking what news is. It seems like, you know, just bringing competition back, just, you know, breaking well, up the giant media monopolies you know, might be a starting point. Absolutely. And, and, you know, you and I have had this conversation so many times, Tom, about what the corporate media covers and what they don't. And, you know, often it's either based on uh, the parent company ownership or what best delivers uh, in 22 minutes of news a, a sale of a new bottle of detergent. Uh, and it's not necessarily getting the facts or information out. And, and we, we're struggling into that on a regular basis. Yeah, yeah it, it absolutely is. We're uh, hitting a break here. We'll be back with uh, more of Congressman Mark Pocan taking your calls in Middays with Mark here on the Tom Hartman program. Stick around. We'll be right back. It is uh, coming up on just 18 minutes past. back. Congressman Mark Pocan on the line, taking your calls. And uh, let's see here, Jill in Princeton, Minnesota. You are on the air with Congressman Pocan. Hi, Congress Congressman Pocan. How are you? I am good, Jill. Thank you. On, on the lighter side, um, you spoke at our third annual democracy convention held yes. at the University of Minnesota. And Thank you that for that. That was awesome. And I'm I'm wondering um, what your take is on how what we're doing at our democracy convention, how it relates to um, the wars that are continuing and the fears that people have. And I, I don't want to take up time. I'm just wondering what your what your thoughts are on what we're doing at our uh, third annual democracy convention. Well, I think, you know, whether it be the, the democracy convention this past uh, week and weekend in, in Minnesota, Netroots Nation this week in Atlanta, um, whenever we have these convening uh, of people who uh, are trying to help, you know, on public policy, this is exactly how we will ultimately win, is with people power, right? Uh, we know that the, the public in general agrees with us on the issues. Um, it's just that uh, often money and, and things distort on the on the on the far right, but we have the people power, and right now people are engaged, and we saw the engagement uh, both at the conference uh, in Minnesota, and I think we'll see it again uh, this week at Netroots Nation. The more we can get people uh, reaching out to their elected officials, uh, joining with organizations to amplify their voices, to, to fight the bad things that are happening at this time, and getting ready for 
uh, the next set of elections because now we all know elections have consequences uh, without a doubt. It, nothing more than looking at the last 24 hours and, and the madness that this president's put out there around North Korea um, and the really dangerous uh, behavior uh, says why we all have to be active. So every time we get together with other folks, I think it's energizing. It helps us share ideas and uh, helps us to make sure that we can get other people also engaged. And that's ultimately how we win. John in uh, Janesville, Wisconsin, here on the air with Congressman Mark Pocan. Good morning, gentlemen. Thank you both for what you do. Congressman Pocan, uh, question. As far as the fairness doctrine goes, where we're getting killed and there's only like, what, nine or ten stations that uh, talk about things that we want to do in this country today, when Ronald Reagan did away with that back in his tenure, was that a law or did he sign it out with executive privilege? executive order you remember you know that tom i think i might ask you that question sure. i'm not sure the history of it um, it was John, it but... was it was the federal communications commission uh the fairness doctrine uh, said it, it was part of the fcc code uh you know part of the rules that the fcc promulgated in response to the to the telecommunications act so it wasn't written by congress it was written by the fcc so reagan was able to direct the fcc to simply stop enforcing their own regulation and then two years ago, or maybe three years ago, President Obama uh, ordered the FCC to actually physically remove it from the books. But it did not mandate that if I do a show on a particular network that Rush Limbaugh has to do the next show. You know, it, it, it wasn't that. It, it was about speech by the station itself, uh, which Sinclair Broadcasting does, that if you did an editorial on behalf of the station, you had to offer a, a, you know, the, other, the other point of view, number one. Number two, you had to give a certain amount of free time to uh, p political candidates and and uh, talk about the issues of the day. And number three, uh, you had to program in the public interest, which this all fell, fell into that rubric. And the largest, 99%, 95% of that was uh, providing actual news, which is why all the news networks lost money on their news feed, because that was the cost of keeping a radio or TV license. Um, so... And I think to John's point um, is, you know, I, I think it would be great if we had the fairness doctrine back, right? It's a yeah, I agree. Have that protection in place. And the second thing is, and, and I and I'm glad to see the Democrats made this part of their new better deal proposal uh, about talking about better jobs and better wages and a better future is antitrust law. You know, just the yep. fact that we're watching Sinclair about to do a consolidation that's going to hit over 70 percent of the country, a company that's had a political bias um, to present media, that's a problem. And, you know, it's part of our antitrust laws that quite honestly uh, go back to Bill Clinton, but we see it in a number of areas. I'm glad to see the Democrats are raising issues like that, um, you know, looking at 2018, because it really is affecting consumers and the American people. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, let's see here, David in Columbus, Ohio, you're on the, on the air with Congressman Pocan. Hi. Congressman, I appreciate your uh, efforts in uh, participating in this. The only chance I get to understand uh, a true democratic response to the Republicans is your comments. And since you sit in on all, all the meetings, uh, unfortunately, the Democrats have seemed to go along with a lot of these wars, which are completely insane, and uh, been been carried on for a long, long time, all the way back to the Truman administration. What do you feel the Democratic response is? I know what Keith Ellison feels. I know what you feel. But what is the uh, overall Democratic response to uh, all this warmongering? 
Well, you know, I'll tell you, David, it's a great question. And I think, you know, I've been looking at, let me, if I can, just read, I don't want to do it long, I'm going to read a sentence or two or a word or two out of Nancy Pelosi's statement. She called it recklessly belligerent, a grave lack of appreciation for the severity of the North Korean nuclear situation. I mean, I think if you follow, uh, especially social media today, because we now have that in place, you can see I'm watching across the board, across the somewhat the spectrum within the Democratic Party concern. Uh, about what's happening, especially around North Korea. So um, while, you know, I think one of the things we've always had to, to challenge, and you find it often with votes in Congress, is that people have a lot of the military operations in their district, and that sometimes uh, affects how people vote on things. In general, uh, especially with a president like this, I, I see more and more, that's why we had a almost unanimous vote on the Appropriations Committee to have a, a new reauthorization because I think there's concern that we're not you're doing the checks and balances the Constitution says, which is getting Congress involved when that comes because we're the closest to the people. So, well, Paul Ryan blew that up, didn't he? Well, he did, and uh, I think this is where like, I just put a tweet out today. We're trying to put pressure back on him again. I mean, Paul Ryan needs to start standing up for the country, and I, I would say political party, but I don't even think he's standing up for his political party right now. He's just rolling over and letting the president rub his belly whenever the president needs to, and that's quite honestly uh, not the behavior of the Speaker of the House of Representatives. He's supposed to be the Speaker for me and for the American people as well because he's got that job, and instead he might as well go directly on the, the payroll of this White House with all the other wackiness they're doing because he's defied any logic in standing up as a separate branch of government. So I, I wonder, we need him to stand up. I wonder if he's thinking uh, Trump is going to get impeached, Pence will become president, and I'll become vice president. So I need to be nice to these guys. Who uh, knows? The way he's going, he's just going to be a nice laptop. I think you're right. You're listening to the Tom Hartman Program. Welcome back. It's Middays with Mark. Congressman Mark Pocan taking your calls for the hour and uh, getting back back on the line here. Congressman Pocan, you're still with us? I am. And great. Okay, let's pick up some phone calls here. Uh, Terrell in Texas, you're on the air with, uh, no, I'm sorry. Uh, I, I've got different call screening software here than normal. Norma in uh, Montgomery, Alabama, you're the one who's on the, no? Wait a second. Yeah, it's Norma. Okay. I'm having a hard time reading my own software. Norma, you're on the air with Congressman Pocan. Hello? Oh, no, it is Terrell. Hey, Terrell in uh, yeah. Texas. You're on the air with Congressman Pocan. Yeah. yeah, how you doing? Good. I uh, appreciate y'all taking my call, um, Congressman Pocan and Mr. Hartman. Well, my question is, I was a diehard Democrat. This year right here just basically made me want to go more independent because what I'm wondering is, how come... Congress and Democrats right now aren't really trying to force the issue of single-payer health care so that we can have some sort of basis to stand behind them. Most of the country is trying to become single-payer and everything, and if I figure that if Democrats really force the issue, there will be more Democrats elected for this, this next term. Yeah, so Troll, first of all, I, I agree. I mean, when I go around and do town halls, uh, the number one issue that comes up is we talk about health care. The number one issue of any town hall these days, when we get to single payer or Medicare for all, gets the single best response. So I completely agree with you. But uh, the only thing I'd say a little different is I do see Democrats talking about this. And we have a record number of sponsors on John Conyers' bill, uh, Medicare for All, uh, House Resolution 676, 116 people. So 116 people out of the 186 or so House Democrats 
are currently sponsors, the top level uh, we've ever had. So I think that's encouraging and promising. But I also uh, realize that with a Republican House and a Republican Senate and a Republican President, it's uh, not going to happen. So that does move us to 2018 and talking about that conversation. So I hear people like Randy Bryce, who's running against Paul Ryan in Wisconsin's 1st District, uh, making this a, a major issue that he's talking about. And I'm seeing it in other congressional districts around the country. So the good news is 116 Democrats are in support of that bill, which is a record number. And the good thing is, I think we're seeing people talk about it uh, when they're running against a Republican incumbent. So um, let's keep the pressure up. This is one where, you know, I don't, again, I, I've said this, I, I don't like to quote bumper stickers, but if the people lead, eventually the leaders will follow. We just need to keep being vocal about this and asking uh, for what we want, as opposed to people telling us what we need in healthcare. Amen. Norma in uh, Montgomery, Alabama. You're on the air with Congress in Pocan. And, hey, Dr. Tom, is this me? That's you. <laughs> okay. Finally. Sorry. Uh, yeah, that's okay. Um, I also, you know, am for single payer, and I wish they'd at least put that in as an option in a bill. But, no, the reason I call is this Trump TV thing is what I'm calling it. We already have perception management run by ma ma major corporations. You see the same thing on so many stations. And this reminds me of the brainwashing of that was the basis of the book Fahrenheit 451. I don't think anybody reads anymore, and that's part of the problem. But if they don't understand that they are essentially being programmed, that you'll think this way, you'll believe this way, taking away freedom of speech from us, taking away the First Amendment, it's going to be a lot easier. People are just going to go ahead and agree, and then when they try to pull this Constitution Convention stuff and de deny us the right to, say, to elect senators or the, the, the right to protest or the right to vote, I don't know what is going to happen in this country because I don't think that people are going to put up with it. What makes these people think that they can turn us into 451? Yeah, well, I'll tell you. So, so what I look at is, you know, they look at the last election and, you know, uh, not trying to re-debate the merits of it. But what we when we were down 200,000 Democratic voters in Wisconsin, it had consequences. Uh, Russ Feingold, who was, I think, one of the finest U.S. senators we had in the country, um, who during 2010 got kicked out like so many did across the country, was running again, wasn't down in a single poll but because uh, we had a depressed turnout, partially because of things like photo IDs laws, partially because of a somewhat uninspired uh, presidential campaign um, in Wisconsin with no visits by the candidate, uh, we wound up losing, and Ron Johnson got reelected. And, and, and Tom, I don't know if you saw, but Ron Johnson this morning, uh, one of the more disgusting things I've seen come out of a, a U.S. senator, said that the reason John McCain voted the way he did on health care might have been because of his brain tumor. Oh, jeez. Yeah, so I've twice now tweeted out for him to apologize. This is absolutely ridiculous. But, you know, that's they're so good at making sure their base comes out no matter what. But they do all sorts of things to make it so we don't get voters out, and then they can kind of tweak the elections. They either do it through votes or through gerrymandering by, you know, again, picking who your voters are as opposed to the voters picking their elected officials. We just have to push back on those uh, efforts uh, wherever we see them so that they can't do those things. So, um, I'm just hoping that we keep this activism up. We have to keep engaging people. We have to have record turns up, turnouts in 2018. And with record turnouts, you're going to be able to change a lot of faces of those who uh, are in Congress and make them represent you, as well as our state legislatures and our municipal governments. We just have to keep as vigilant as possible. We're seeing this, this really damaging effect of what's happening, and we've got to stop it really quickly. Chris in Littleton, Colorado. You're on with Congressman Pocan. 
Representative, um, it looks like here in Colorado, Ed Perlmutter, um, I guess, isn't going to be running for the House, but I'm, I really hope that he runs for Senate. But, I mean, if he leaves the state, that's going to be a huge loss for us down here. Yeah, you know, Ed's a, a great colleague, and I know he was thinking about governor, and now he's decided not to do that. I'm not sure if we've got a 100% definitive if he's not running for re-election again as uh, a member of Congress. Um, I know at one point he said he wasn't, but I, I know a lot of members have talked to him about it. But, uh, you know, um, we're going to be focusing, though, on the districts, too, that we've got to pick up around the country. And, you know, we know that I think there's 23 districts that Hillary Clinton won that have Republicans. We know there's a number of other swing districts uh, out there. and we saw the big shifts in the special elections this year in deep red districts that narrowed down to barely red districts. If you start having that kind of a swing in districts that are 5% Republican or 7% Republican, that's, that's obliterated, that amount. So um, we, uh, I think the last I heard is something like 208 districts that have Republicans already have an announced Democrat running, and about 10% of that is what Republicans have running against Democrats. There is an enthusiasm out there. We're going to have a lot of primary. I think we have to be careful not to, you know, uh, how we treat each other through those primaries, but we have got some real opportunities to uh, make sure that we're taking back the House of Representatives in 2018. Caesar in Chicago, you're on the air with Congressman Pocan. Hi, good afternoon, everyone. Thanks for having such informative uh, program. My question has to deal, I mean, especially here in Chicago, one of the facts that I always see and, and read is thing that's really worrying me right now is the Foxconn deal, for example. It reminds me, I'm from Guatemala, so it reminds me a lot of the deals that happen in countries like Guatemala. Can you elaborate a little bit on that, especially with the land grants, the, land, the tax breaks that you're giving them, what that's going to mean politically, socially, and economically for the state, not only your state, but also here in Illinois? Yeah, and you know, Caesar, let me even take it a little broader. I mean, we see these around the country when people do these incentives. It's the low road economics, right? Not the high road. You know, we'll, we'll offer incentives for someone to come across a state line to steal from another state or so, something, and you wind up offering so much of an incentive that you'll never get the tax return. There was one um, uh, on the border of Wisconsin and Minnesota where a Dairy Queen got about two hundred and fifty thousand dollars in incentives, and they created two part-time jobs out of it. Um, that's not a, a good deal for taxpayers. So with Foxconn, I think a couple things are important to mention. Um, one is I think a lot of what they're doing is looking at if President um, Trump really is going to do the tariffs he's talking about, which I don't think will ever become a reality because the Republicans in Congress won't ever allow that. Um, they're trying to be ready to make sure that they've got a presence here uh, if they need to. Now, they've told Pennsylvania to build a plant they never did. They told Indonesia they're going to build a plant they never did. And I think there's a third one somewhere that they promised and never done. So first of all, I don't, you've got to be careful how you give incentives to something that may never happen. Second, I keep hearing the company saying it's going to be 3,000 jobs. Scott Walker, who's desperate for re-election in 2018, keeps saying 13,000 well, jobs. Isn't he including the, 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 the construction jobs to build the no, factory? That's separate. that's separate. What he's doing is they said aspirationally they'd like to have 13,000. Oh. You know, Tom, in your business, aspirationally, you'd love to have a staff of 100, right? Oh, yeah. <laughs> you know, and someday we may. Who knows? Right. But, you know, maybe not in the next year or two. And here Foxconn, so what what he's doing is saying that $13,000 number with the $3 billion of incentives to try to lower the per-job number, and then they're claiming it's going to be $54,000, $55,000 a year job um, uh, wages for those jobs, but right now they're paying a little over 
$17 a day in Asia. Again, a lot doesn't pass the upper Midwest smell test. So um, I want to make sure as I talk to my friends in the legislature, and I have extensively in the last two weeks, that they any incentives, if they're going to be offered, they should be tied to the actual number of jobs, the pay of jobs uh, as they're looking forward. Because otherwise, um, you know, you start doing this, I think it's like 40 some years before we get our money back uh, in offering this kind of an incentive. And, you know, companies, of course, are going to go around and fish and play state to state to state to do this kind of stuff. This is the low road to economics. It's yeah. a good thing if you have 13,000 new jobs. But I'm not sure there are going to be that. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Visit TomHartman.com for audio and video archives. We'll be back with more of your calls for Congressman Pocan right after this. You know, Congressman, back uh, some years ago, this is probably five, six years ago, uh, uh, Bernie was doing one of his uh, week, you know, uh, segments like this. Uh, with us and somebody called in about this topic and he offered what I thought was the most common sense solution I've ever heard. And I'm wondering if it ever got any traction and if any of your colleagues, he suggested that any states that participate in interstate competition for, for for a corporation moving within the United States, this was back when Boeing was playing states against each other. You know, who's going to give us the best Mm -hmm. deal if we move our headquarters out of Seattle? Um, he suggested that any state that participates should lose their federal highway matching funds for at least a year or two. What do you think? Wow. Um, well, I'll tell you, one of the things we used to try to do, uh, we had a group called, uh, it was the worst uh, name, MPN, um, but it was the Midwest Progressive Elected Officials Network, state legislators in the upper Midwest. And we tried to stop this by saying, oh, let's all commit to having a high road to economics. Let's not allow this to happen. And we started doing proposals like if a company doesn't create the jobs they said they're going to, which is rarely, by the way, Tom, ever checked after the fact to see if right. they created what they said, uh, that they have to give back money. Or if they uh, uh, leave within a certain amount of time, they have to give back money. We try to put some reasonable standards out there so that suddenly uh, that company may not just grab all the money because they may have to pay some of it back. Right now, it's often a blank check with everyone going for the press release, and you just spent $3 billion for a press release that you created $13,000 jobs, when in reality, uh, you may get a far smaller number of jobs, if any, uh, at a much greater cost. Yeah, yeah, amen. Let's see here. Thomas in um, Seymour, Illinois, watching Free Speech TV on the Dish Network. You are on the air with Congressman Pocan. Okay, good morning. Uh, I was wondering, does Congress have oversight over the Supreme Court in our, you know, whether or not they can, uh, you know, like they could undo Citizens United? If I may, if I may read from Article Three, Section Two of the Constitution, and then you can go off on it, Congressman. Sure. Um, Article Three, Section Two says the Supreme Court shall have appellate jurisdiction both as to law and fact, with such exceptions and under such regulations as the Congress shall make. And yes, there has been legislation that specifically has said within the legislation the Supreme Court may not rule on this. To you, sir. And, and specifically to Citizens United, I mean, there are several constitutional amendments that would address it. Um, while there are several, the one that I personally think is the most effective is the one that uh, Move to Amend nationally has been advocating for, which is pretty simple. It says money is not speech and corporations are not people. Not only do you get rid of the, the 
on fundraising, anonymous money, parts of and Citizens United. But you start to say a corporation is not a person in other parts of the law, which is also necessary. Yeah. And, and which is, uh, you know, reversing the head note that John Chandler Bancroft Davis wrote into the 1886 Santa Clara County decision. Um, even though the decision went opposite of the head note, the Supreme Court has been quoting the head note for the last 150 years. It's, it's absolutely crazy, uh, this whole idea of corporate personhood. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. So uh, it, we just have 10 seconds here. We're going to hit a break. But, but I, uh, if anybody is interested, I wrote a book about this called Unequal Protection. I'm not trying to sell the book. You can read it for free online, the entire book, over at truthout.org. Uh, it's about you know, the 14th Amendment, how corporations became people, starts, in, starts actually with the founding of the Republic, goes through 1886, goes through the Citizens of the United case, uh, Buckley, all that stuff. Anyhow, we'll be back with Congressman Mark Pope. Welcome back. Let's see here. CJ in uh, Titusville, Florida. You are on the air with Congressman Pokan. Hi, Tom. Congressman, how are you? Hey, good, CJ. Thank you. I, I understand the taxpayers have pumped about a trillion dollars into strategic defense initiative, missile defense. Uh, I never hear anything about that as being really the solution to this Korea thing. Do you think that might be just another MIC boondoggle? Well, I, I'll tell you, let me say this, I think, because I, I didn't say this earlier, and I want to make sure I get it out. The Progressive Caucus, you know, we have been urging for a long time, including President Obama, to commit to a no-first-use uh, policy for nuclear weapons. And uh, so, you know, we've done this with both Democrat and Republican administrations. And, uh, you know, we just want to make sure that these uh, are not used, especially as uh, – seemingly unthinkingly, as uh, President Trump has, has been talking about, right? I mean, the fact that he just says this so cavalier, and as you contrasted, Tom, you know, with what President Truman and how he said it and when he said it versus saying it now and then watching his whole administration trying to put the words back out of the public airways, this is what's dangerous. So, you know, um, a big part of it is I wish we had fewer nukes, period, across the world. I wish we'd invest more to uh, bring in some of those old nukes and uh, – you know, we, we go back to nuclear-free zones here in Wisconsin back in the early 80s, I remember working on. Um, but, I, you know, I think that just having a no a commitment to a no-first-use uh, policy um, and, and other ideas that we've tried to put out there would be far uh, better for us overall. And getting that um, new debate on an authorization is absolutely critical. Tracy in Fredericksburg, Maryland. You're on the air with Congressman Pocan. Tracy? No, Tracy. Okay, let's try Martha in Dwight, North Dakota. Martha, you are on the air with Congressman Pocan. Thank you. I really appreciate this. But I got one question for the congressman. Um, I'm here in North Dakota, and we're getting our butts kicked by law enforcement and stuff here. And I'm wondering where the representatives and, and any people like that are. What, uh, Marsha, what do you mean by getting our butts kicked by law enforcement? Well, um, the dogs attacking us and the water cannons and all of that, you know. I, are, you, are you part of a Native American community there? No, I'm just a state member. And, and I'm wondering, how come we don't have any representatives out there helping us with our protests, with all of the things that we're fighting against? This is with regard to Dakota Access Pipeline? Correct. 
yeah. okay. and health care, you know, all of the things that we're all protesting. I don't see a lot of congressmen helping. Right. Okay. Yeah, Congre- Martha, congressman. So, okay. So I know that there have been a number of letters and I believe press conferences and other statements with members around that issue and other issues around it. So I know there's been activity. I think, you know, what we often point back to is if the corporate media doesn't uh, report it, did it happen? Um, you know, if a tree falls in the forest and no one's there to listen, did it, you know, make a sound? Uh, this is often what happens. So members have advocated. I think the tough part is, you know, we all have a tough travel schedule. You know, last week I was in New Jersey and Minnesota. Next week, or this week I'm in Georgia. Next week I'm in Nevada. Following week I'm in Tennessee. You know, that's in between trying to represent my district and do my job here. So, um, you know, I know there are some members who've made uh, more uh, awareness than others on this, and I think you should try to invite uh, folks to, to come to your area, but realize that, you know, our first responsibility is to our districts. We're in Washington uh, a lot of time, other than August, happens to be this period where we're home, but as I just gave you part of my travel schedule, you know, we're, we're all trying to advocate on behalf of a lot of things, but this is one where I know activity has happened in Washington. Jim in Lombard, Illinois, you're on the air with Congress in Pocan. Hi, Congressman. Hi, Tom. I just had a thing I wanted to say. Uh, This is what I say. I think Republicans have been blinded by right-wing propaganda and money. And what we have is the blind leading the blind. There are physically blind people who have better mental vision than these Republicans do. What do you think of that? Well, I mean, there's no question that... um so much of this comes to what their donors and their corporate masters via their donations uh, do for their campaigns or why the decisions uh, they make the decisions. You know, there are some things that are core principles, I guess, that make someone a Republican or especially these days the Tea Party. You know, there's some um, interesting core principles, although largely around racism and xenophobia. Uh, but there's no question that money distorts things so much in politics, which is why, whether it be Citizens United or a variety of other measures that we talk about, you've got to adjust and address them. Otherwise, why would we allow pharmaceutical companies to continue to price gouge and do the activities they do? Why would we allow oil companies to still get subsidies despite record profits? I go down the list. There's a whole lot of bad decisions that happen because of their ability to uh, influence campaigns with money. And, and you're, you're right on that, Jim. Uh, Mark in Chino, uh, Chico, California. You're on the air with Congressman Pokin. Hi, Congressman uh, Pokin. Hey, uh, you know why they speak of Russia 24/7 and Korea? Um, a lot of regulations are are being um, uh, discarded, and uh, a lot of those we aren't going to get back. And uh, you know, I, I think it's really time for. Um, people to start uh, speaking up about the regulations that Trump and his um, cohorts are getting rid of. So um, I wish he would talk about that. Yeah. uh, So let me say a couple things. I mean, one, I think, you know, we are definitely trying to point out uh, this rollback of regulations often means uh, protections for things like clean air and clean water and worker safety and a whole lot of things that the vast majority of people support. But when you just give it a generic name, like it's a you know burdensome regulation that's stopping job creation, which is usually the, the specter they raise, there's a whole lot more to often what they're trying to roll back. And, um, you know, we see this in nearly every single area, and this is something that I would argue that uh, President Trump has been mildly successful on, because a lot of this is regulated by the agencies that he himself has appointed. So, so we need to keep 
speaking out uh, on these, right, and keep uh, making sure people realize that uh, what may be called in the vernacular, you know, uh, just another regulation is really protecting your water and your air and, you know, the fact that you can go home at the end of a day and not uh, be injured or dead. And shouldn't we add to that protecting us from corporations who are willing to harm us in the name of profits? Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, you know, and I think what we need to do, I, I, I'm a big believer of storytelling, and I think we have to make sure that people hear more of the stories of why uh, a regulate, just getting rid of a regulation is not as simple as that sounds, that it affects real people and that it could affect their family as well as people they love. Yeah. We just have a half a minute to the end of the hour, uh, Congressman. What should we be looking for in this coming week here? You know, I'll tell you, Tom, I've quit trying to answer a question like that uh, every <laughs> week. I get surprised by this president. Um, like I said, you know, the one piece of advice I give people a lot, if he talks about something, often it's not going to happen. Um, but I worry about the stuff he doesn't talk about that all of a sudden he does. So sometimes it, it may be good if he's talking about it because it's just his bravado. And then we know I'm starting to read some signals. But, um, you know, keep watching uh, North Korea, clearly important, and make sure they're not backdooring some health care legislation that's going to hurt a lot of people. And, and you mentioned quite a bit of traveling you're doing. I'm assuming people can find your schedule over at uh, pocan.house.gov? In some cases. I mean, I'll be at Netroots Nation doing a couple panels in uh, different spots. Um, we'll be doing some town halls in this area, too. Okay, great. Congressman Mark Pocan, thanks so much. Yeah, thank you, Tom, as always. Great talking with you. Middays with Mark. We'll be right back. Welcome back. Tom Hartman here with you. A bunch of the news that's going on right now. It turns out that two weeks ago, Paul Manafort the guy who used to work in uh, Ukraine, who was the first, I don't know what the title was, uh, the head of the uh, Trump campaign, uh, president of the campaign or chairman or whatever. It's, I don't know. Nobody knows here. Anyway, whatever, whatever it was that uh, Manafort, the feds did a no-knock search. They, they basically, this is where, you know, they, they show up and kick in the door or, or some variation on that. And they typically only do this when they, this is a pre-dawn raid, in fact, the sun wasn't even up. They typically do this kind of thing when they fear that there is a possibility that evidence will be destroyed or when they're trying to seriously intimidate somebody. And, uh, you know, my guess would be that there's an element of both here, uh, maybe trying to get Manafort to flip and, and you know, spill the beans on others in the Trump administration. I, you know, I don't know. We'll see. Uh, but keep an eye on this on this spot. I mean, it's just now being reported, but this happened two weeks ago, and uh, that's a big deal. Uh, the uh, is, uh, Betsy DeVos's uh, brother, Eric Prince, uh, you know, had a meeting with uh, Donald Trump and friends where he made the sales pitch of, you know, uh, even though he's hiding out in another country nowadays most of the time, uh, he's a major Republican donor, major Trump donor. His sister's in the cabinet, all this kind of stuff. And he's like, hey, you know, uh, we've got airplanes, we've got soldiers, we've got, you know, we've got a, a, a mercenary army for you. Uh, we could take over the war in Iraq or Afghanistan, excuse me. And uh, the Pentagon has just said, no, no, we're not going to do that. Uh, just a quick heads up. I got a, a note from uh, Ken Chestick, the chair of Wyoming Promise. And he's talking about how they're, they're working on trying to, uh, in Wyoming, work on the on the uh the idea of a constitutional convention or not a convention but a, a constitutional amendment that says that corporations aren't people and money is not speech and the website if you want to check it out is wyomingprogress.org 
And it uh, looks to me like a pretty good organization. 20 things Mike Pence did when you weren't looking and why it matters. This from uh, medium.com. And it's just, it, it's, it gives you a pretty good sense of who Mike Pence is, what his values are, what his, what his priorities are. And I've, I will just very quickly run through this list and, and, uh, and, and we will be picking up your phone calls in just a minute. But um, uh, in January, uh, Pence uh, and others uh, lobbied Trump to take hardline positions on abortion, making good on his uh, you know, forced pregnancy campaign pledges. Uh, he has led the charge to advance Trump's policy, policy agenda in general. Uh, for example, he tweeted, Obamacare will be replaced with something that actually works, bringing freedom and individual responsibility back to American health care. Yes, you are free to die like a dog in the gutter, and you are individually responsible for your own hospital bills. Oh, Mike Pence, you're so smart. Number three, he's been vocal about supporting the use of tax dollars to fund religious schools. Uh, again, he tweeted, this is National School Choice Week. POTUS and I are committed to making a great education possible for all our children. Uh, in other words, let's take tax dollars and give them to religious zealots. Uh, number four, in January, Pence met with anti-abortion activists at the White House and delivered a speech at the annual March for Life. This is a guy who is very, very committed to forcing any woman who becomes pregnant under any circumstances to carry that baby to term, uh, even, even if it may means you know, a risk to her health. One of the most one of the more dangerous things that can happen to a woman in her life is to become pregnant. People die from pregnancy. But, you know, Pence doesn't care. He's a man. Uh, number five, Pence spent much of February spent selling the nomination of Neil Gorsuch to the Supreme Court as mainstream. <sighs> right. He, uh, this guy has got probably the most far right ideology of anybody who's been on the Supreme Court since the 1920s. And uh, Mike Pence, you know, sold him. He cast the tie-breaking vote to put Betsy, Betsy DeVos in as Secretary of Education. I think most, most Americans have completely forgotten that. Congress not, was not willing to make, you know, this, this right-wing billionaire brother of Eric Prince, you know, uh, heir to the families that basically own Republican politics in the state of Michigan, uh, this billionaire Betsy DeVos, who's never, you know, never went to public school, never taught in public school, uh, as far as anybody could tell, never even walked into a public school until she became education secretary, putting her in charge. Uh, the guy who was pushing this, and by the way, Lisa Murkowski and Susan Collins voted against Betsy DeVos. The guy who was pushing this, Mike Pence, and he cast the tie-breaking vote. In May, he was named the head of the, uh, of the Voter Suppression Commission. Chris Kobach gets all the publicity, but Mike Pence is actually the head of this thing. You know, the, uh, the so-called Advisory Commission on Election Integrity. Uh, you know, how can we suppress more votes of poor people, people of color, older people, and uh, students? Number eight, Pence invited anti-abortion activists to the White House to discuss how to merge their agenda with that of the Trump administration. You know, specifically asking them, what do you want to see in the American health care bill, right? This was their repeal and replace thing that went down in flames. Later that month, he cast the tie-breaking vote to nullify a Title X uh, rule from the Obama era that Title X funds could be used for family planning. He said, nope, can't do that. Uh, sorry, poor women are not entitled to birth control. Uh, you know, 
if they get pregnant, they're, you know, we will pass regulations forcing the government to require their pregnancy be carried to term. But, you know, so we'll, we'll regulate their pregnancy, but we're not going to, you know, offer them birth, birth control pills. Number 10, Mike Pence met with members of the financial industry and championed efforts to roll back Dodd-Frank consumer protections. In other words, he's on the take from the banksters. You know, it's just real simple. He's just a shill for the banksters. Uh, meeting with community bankers at the White House. I said the Choice Act is a common sense bill that repeals Dodd-Frank. Right. Right. Because we all just want to be back under the thumbs of the big banks, right? Uh, even more so than we are already. In May, uh, Pence addressed a uh, campaign for life gala. This is the so-called Susan B. Anthony list. Well, not so-called. That's what they call themselves. It's a, it's a forced, uh, forced pregnancy group. Uh, number 12, Pence played a role in urging Trump to sign a religious ex liberty executive order during the National Day of Prayer ceremony. Uh, this is, uh, you know, religious liberty is, is, a, is a phrase that preach, you know, the, the, the Christian Taliban uses to say we're entitled to tax dollars. Uh, number 13, Pence addressed the first ever world summit in defense of persecuted Christians. Right, because Christians are so badly persecuted in the United States. Um, the, uh, 14, well, uh, to give them some due, you know, some Christians in parts of the world are persecuted. Um, they weren't being persecuted in Iraq. They were protected by Saddam Hussein until we decided to stupidly invade that country. They weren't being persecuted by, uh, Bashar al-Assad. They were protected in Syria until, until we got involved in that. Libya, they were being protected by Gaddafi, but all, all bets are off now because of the insanity of Republican foreign policy. At the University of Notre Dame, he gave a commencement address saying political. He said, far too many college campuses across America have become characterized by speech codes, safe zones, tone policing, administration sanctioned political correctness, all of which amounts to nothing less than the suppression of freedom of speech. In other words, hey, when we, you know, when our hate speech guys come to your campus, you really should stand up and listen to what they have to say. Uh, in May, he started his own political action committee called the Great America Committee. In other words, in May, basically, Mike Pence decided he was going to run for president. Uh, don't tell Donald Trump. He'll get very upset. In June, he was put in charge of space policy. He's raised money for his PAC and other political causes, uh, number 17. Number 18, on June 2030, he addressed Focus on the Family. Focus on the Family, one of the biggest of the bigoted organizations that work to destroy the lives of gay people. Uh, LGBTQ people. Uh, number 19, as special elections have popped up around the country, Pence has been hitting the campaign trail in support of his fellow Republicans. You can't really criticize him for that. I mean, that's uh, number 20. Pence has been pressuring Congress to implement anti-trans policies in the military. Uh, you can criticize him for that. That's pretty vicious. Um, and, uh, you know, the point that they make is that this matters because Pence might not always be vice president. And uh, so... Anyhow, there's that. Also, yesterday, you know, the, the, the big topic we were asking throughout the day was, you know, who would be worse for America, Trump or Pence? This was all before Trump came out and said, right after I got off the air yesterday, came out and said, uh, you know, that North Korea, if they continue to threaten us, not if they take action against us, but if they, if they continue to talk, that they are going to see fire. And and uh, and, you know, essentially destruction. I mean, you know, he 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 threatened them with nuclear weapons if they don't shut up. Now, keep in mind, this is the guy who in the transcripts that were released a couple of days ago of his conversations with Malcolm Turnbull in in Australia and uh, President Pino Neto 
in uh, Mexico. In both cases, he begged both presidents to say things or not to say things that would embarrass him. He, you know, remember he said to, to the president of Mexico, you can't keep talking about how you're not going to pay for the wall because it, it's embarrassing me. It makes me look terrible. So now he is saying to, I, I think this is a variation of the same thing. He's saying to Kim Jong-un, you quit talking like that because it makes me look bad. And if you don't quit talking like that, I'm going to nuke you. Well, you know, our Ian Milheiser has a great piece over at Think Progress right now about how our nuclear system is designed so that only one man can, can trigger the firing of nukes, and that's the president. And he can do it in about a two-minute window. And, uh, you know, to, at the most, five, six minutes for it to be fully implemented. And it's very, very hard to stop once it's started. We need to reconsider this. Serious stuff. Welcome back. Tom Harbin here with you. There is a really important piece to uh, Donald Trump's statement yesterday about North Korea. I, I referred to it earlier, but I didn't, like, put a spotlight on it. And I think there really should be a spotlight put on this. In the past, I mean, literally, in the past 240 years of the history of the United States of America, we have, to the best of my knowledge, never had a president threaten a country that we were not actively engaged in armed conflict with. You know, FDR spoke ill of the Nazis. Um, Harry Truman after he bombed Hiroshima, said, you know, uh, more, more fire is going to come out of the sky if you, if you don't surrender. And they didn't surrender. And three or four days later, he bombed Nagasaki, uh, at which point the Japanese said, OK, uncle, you know, we give. But those were threats to do things in the context of a war. And I realized that we're still at war with North Korea. There's an armistice. But there, there, there actually isn't even an armistice. There's a truce. There's no peace treaty. So technically, we're at war with North Korea, but we're not in a shooting war with them, and we haven't been in a shooting war with them since 1953, as I recall, and maybe 54. I, I don't know. I, you know, I was not <laughs> 53. I was one year old, so or two years old, so I was not paying attention. But uh, there's a qualitative, a, a substantial and important Important, and it's really important, I think, to, to acknowledge this difference between what Donald Trump did yesterday and what every president has done before him. And that is that he said specifically, and he came right out and said it, he said that they need to stop threatening us. Now, Hugo Chavez has threatened us. Uh, the uh, Ahmadinejad from Iran has threatened us. Khrushchev threatened us, uh, arguably. There, there has been no shortage. You know, certainly uh, Gaddafi and, and Saddam Hussein and the Ayatollah Khomeini. And I mean, there's been no shortage of, of world leaders who at various times have threatened the United States. But what Donald Trump said, and I, I quote, North Korea best not make any more threats to the United States. They will be met, 
And either they means North Korea or it means the threats, but the, the consequential meaning is the same. They will be met with fire and fury like the world has never seen. It's a very different thing to say if you attack South Korea, our ally, or if you attack our military bases in South Korea, or if you attack Guam, where we have a huge Air Force base, if you attack the United States, our interests or our allies, we will turn you into a cinder. We will crisp you. That's pretty much conventional wisdom. But to say if you threaten to attack us, we will launch a nuclear strike against you. That is to threaten first use. That is to threaten that we will, we will be the first to pull the trigger. And not only have we never done that before, to the best of my knowledge, I mean, maybe in some of the small wars, maybe, uh, you know, the Mexican-American War, I'm frankly not a student of it. Uh, I've read Abraham Lincoln's writings about how terrible a president he thought Polk was because Polk did the Mexican-American War. Um, and I'm sure that Polk, you know, claimed he had some sort of uh, justification, just like, you know, remember the Maine was the justification for the Spanish-American War. Uh, that there was a boiler room explosion in the USS Maine down in the in the harbor in, in Havana Harbor in Cuba, and, and uh, you know uh, Frederick Remington was down there, and and uh, uh, who was the uh, the family uh, Hearst William Randolph Hearst, you know was publishing his newspaper all across the United States, and he wanted to have a war, and and he basically said to Frederick Remington, "Get me the pictures, and I'll deliver the war." And he did. So we had a rationale. We had a rationale, the Gulf of Tonkin for Vietnam. In every case, even when we weren't attacked, like in Vietnam, we at least pretended we were. And frankly, a large number of people within the United States and within the U.S. foreign policy establishment believed that we had been attacked. The Gulf of Tonkin was a very, very well done lie. But Donald Trump is not talking about that. He's not talking about reacting to an attack, whether it's real or simply perceived. He's talking about reacting to a threat. Now, it's a very different thing when you're on the schoolyard and the bully comes by and says, I'm going to get you, versus when the bully comes by and says, give me your lunch money. And you refuse to do it and he, knock, and he socks you in the, in, the, in, the, in the mouth and pulls the money out of your pocket. Right? One is a threat, the other is an attack. There's a pretty broad consensus, whether it's the schoolyard bully or whether it's you know, North Korea, that if we are attacked, we should fight back. But what if we're simply threatened? Is that the appropriate space for nuclear weapons? And if we establish that as the new principle, as the new line, for nuclear weapons. Keep in mind, we're not the only country in the world that has nuclear weapons. If we establish that if you, if any country threatens us, we will nuke them, what message does that give to India and Pakistan, who have nuclear weapons pointed at each other and on several occasions in the last couple of decades have nearly come to nuclear war, or at least nearly come to war? Their border conflicts are 
famous. So far, both India and Pakistan have been practicing what we've been preaching, which is you only use nuclear weapons if, you're an, if you are attacked with a nuclear weapon. Now, we have not put first strike into our law. There is an attempt to do that right now. But we, it's not the law of the United States. The law of the United States is that it's up to the president. And I personally think we should seriously consider changing that law. And that we should say first strike is not something that the United States will ever do with nuclear weapons. And literally make it a law. We have such overwhelming nuclear capacity that even if somebody got, you know, even if North Korea fired a nuclear weapon at us and even took out a city, God forbid. We could still just wipe them off the face of the earth. Which should be enough deterrence to prevent them from ever attacking us. But the minute that we say that if you're a member of the nuclear club, first strike in response to threat, first strike as deterrence is acceptable, we have completely changed the game. We have completely changed the rules of the game of, of being a nuclear power. A set of rules, by the way, that have kept the world from exploding any nuclear bombs in the context of hostilities since 1944. I mean, it's been a long, long time. Do we really want to change these rules? Do we really want to say that, you know, hey, it's okay to vaporize a million people because somebody's words offended or frightened you? Small-fingered Bulgarian? Do we really want to do it? I say no. Now, there is, you know, the point that Strauss and Howe pointed out on the fourth turning. Every war uses the technology that was developed in the last. That's a bad thing. This is the Tom Hartman Program. They basically predicted if we have another war, it will be nuclear. God forbid. Welcome back. Tom Hartman here with you. And on the line with us is Steve Wimberly. Steve is the director and producer of a new movie called Atticus versus the Architect, the political assassination of Governor Don Siegelman. The website is atticusvthearchitect.com. And uh, Steve, welcome to the program. Well, thank you for having me. Glad thank, to be here. Thanks for joining us. And, and I understand uh, Don Siegelman himself is going to be with us later on in the week. Tell us about the movie. Well, it's, uh, it talks about, uh, really, it reveals a very dark underbelly of politics in Alabama, where Carl Rove and a lot of his uh, Confederates uh, rigged the jury system to throw Don Siegelman in jail uh, and under false pretenses. Um, they were trumped up charges. And matter of fact, uh, they've never been considered criminal charges in the history of American jurisprudence. And uh, as a result of such a... Um, such gross malfeasance, uh, 113 former state's attorneys general have come together to protest the deliberate injustice against Governor Siegelman. Um, it really is a horrendous miscarriage of justice. That It's a story that has to be told, and I think people will be shocked. Um, you know, not only do we tell the story of what happened to Don Siegelman, but we uncovered an enormous amount of, of corruption in Alabama, and we reveal it in the movie. Um, and, and, and I think people are going to be stunned when they find out what really happened. Is the corruption uh, unique to one political party or is it endemic system, systemically? Uh, 
Well, believe it or not, it involves both parties, but mostly Republicans in Alabama. Um, you'll have to once you see the movie, it'll it will explain a little bit uh, that there were Democrats involved. Um, there are a lot of money involved, uh, and it was uh, it, it, people are going to be shocked. I mean, this goes to the the you know the halls of power in in Washington D.C. Right. Uh, of why that they wanted to get Don Siegelman out of the way because they couldn't beat him in the polls. So they had to think of a way to get rid of him in another way. Um, and that was through rigging the jury system and our, well, excuse me, the justice system. You know, they had uh, a, a jury was rigged. Uh, the, the prosecutors were uh, very politically biased against him. And even, you know, they were they worked for uh, Siegelman's political opponents. And of course, there was a judge who was completely biased. So the three checks and balances of the judicial system were all rigged against him. It was impossible for Siegelman to win. How is it that, I mean, you know, Don was in jail for years. Um, he, he, he just got out. How, how is it that that didn't, that, that, that the appeal process failed here? Well, you know, even the political, even the Supreme Court is political. Um, and yeah. that does, you know, it doesn't discount the, the uh, appeals court either. Um, you know, they're very political as well. And he made two appeals. Uh, the first appeal was against uh, uh, three Republican uh, judges appointed by Republicans. And the last one uh, was two of the three uh, judge panels were uh, uh, um, were Republican. And um, one of them is strongly and devoutly Republican, not to mention the very first person that uh, really um, helped uh, – who, uh, who helped rig an election against Governor Siegelman, uh, Bill Pryor, sits on the uh, court of the uh, – sits on the 11th Circuit Court of Appeals where Governor Siegelman's appeals had been heard. Now, of course, he recused him – or he wasn't a part of those juries because, uh, you know, a, a very obvious conflicts of interest um, – but that doesn't mean that you know he doesn't have <laughs> couldn't sway uh, opinions one way or another. Sure, when you work with people every day, when you eat lunch with people every day, you tend to, to have yeah, some influence over them. Um, and, uh, it, yeah. I, I, my recollection is that this really started with the election of 2002 when Bob Riley lost the election. Don Siegelman went to bed believing that he had been reelected governor of Alabama. And when he woke up in the morning, he discovered that uh, in one uh, congressional district, one Republican operative with one computer tabulating system had suddenly discovered something like 15,000 votes or voters who had voted for Democrats down ticket. But uh, originally their vote at the top of the ticket, the governor's office had been had been uh, selected for Siegelman. But in fact, actually, all those people voted for the Republican Bob Riley, and then down ticket, they voted for nothing but Democrats. Am I remembering that correctly? And then, and then Siegelman started yelling about that. At that point, they really started to come down on him like a like a 10, 10 ton hammer. Yes, that's exactly right. Um, uh, matter of fact, the first scene in the movie uh, covers that. Um, it all happened in uh, in down around Mobile, in an area called Baldwin County. Uh, the votes came in. Um, they were all tabulated, and the official call was made by AP and um, CNN. Uh, and all of a sudden, in the middle of the night, they said something went wrong. And what happened was there were about 8,000 votes just disappeared uh, from Governor Siegelman's column. They just flat out disappeared. And it turned out that Riley's former chief of staff, or chief of staff at the time, Dan Gans, 
was at that location with a computer, and he uh, was trained by the compute by the uh, voting technology um, company that provided the the the, uh, the voting machines. So, uh, so he basically, pro- you know, so the allegation is that Bob Riley's former chief of staff basically just edited the election to to make Riley win. And and and, and I remember when Siegelman started doing local radio around that. Around this, uh, there wasn't a single progressive station on the air in Alabama. They're all right-wing hate radio, and they all started screaming, kind of in concert, "He's a sore loser!" Right? Right. <laughs> yeah. That's so typical, too. And you know that you know the media in Alabama um, is strongly uh, um, weighted toward uh, conservatives. Right. So, how do you get from 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 losing, from having an election stolen from you in a fairly obvious fashion. I mean, you know, even for Alabama, this was pretty embarrassing. How do you get from that to being locked in solitary confinement? That's a great question, but it took a lot of people and a lot of money and a lot of time uh, to do it. And it took and a lot of and a lot of it took several years, an estimated fifty million dollars of federal and state money. Uh, to do that, to to actually to destroy Don Siegel, so that he couldn't run against them. Yeah, that's yeah. what we estimate is about. They spent about fifty million dollars in his prosecutions, investigations, and prosecutions. What was Carl Rove's role in all? We're talking with Steve Wimberly. He's the director and producer of Atticus versus the Architect, a new movie, the political assassination of government uh, Governor Don Siegelman. The website is Atticus v the Architect dot com. And uh, and you can easily, uh, you know, plug it into a search engine, too. And uh, also, Steve, don't let me forget to ask you where people can see this and where it's playing. And I realize that you've had at least one theater refuse to play in Alabama. But um, uh, my first question first, if you can. Um, well, uh, as far as, um, you know, how it all happened was, well, I, I guess Carl I Rove's role. To, I'm sorry. What was Carl Rove's role in all this? Carl Rove, being of course the architect, uh, his role was the he devised the whole plan. Uh, every all the roads lead back to Carl Rove. Um, every connection, every person that had something to do with this had a connection to Carl Rove. Um, it really became clear when a whistleblower came forward named Jill Simpson, who had worked with Carl Rove, uh, doing opposition research against Siegelman, and she was brave enough to to come forward and say, look, uh, you know, I know what happened. I was there. Uh, I was doing the opposition research against Don Siegelman, and they told me that I didn't need to work anymore, that um, one of that Carl Rove's partner, Bill Canary, said that his girls would take care of Siegelman. Um, and it turns out his girls was, one, his wife, Laura Canary. Who was a federal was a prosecutor. Federal prosecutor yeah. And a second one named Alice Martin, who was a pros- prosecutor in the Northern District of Alabama. Those were his girls. And sure enough, uh, that's exactly what happened. Uh, wow. Alice Martin, uh, being a prosecutor, filed charges against Siegelman, uh, but Siegelman won. Um, it was, well, I say one, it was thrown out before lunch of the first day. Um, and the judge in the case said it was the most baseless uh, uh, case he had seen in his almost 30 years on the federal bench. Wow. Um, then as soon as that happened, uh, 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 as soon as he was, when I say happened, I mean, well, as soon as he was acquitted, um, he announced not long after that, that he would run for governor again for reelection Uh-oh. against Riley. Uh, just a few days later, uh, they filed charges against him again. 
Uh, right. I think it was like eight days later. Amazing. Um, and that was for this second trial. Right. Um, the prosecutor for this case was married to Siegelman's uh, opponent's campaign manager. Right. Uh, her name was Laura Canary, the federal prosecutor. She was married to Bill Canary, who was the campaign manager of Siegelman's opponent. Bob Riley. And who Bill Canary also is the partner of Carl Rove. So there's a strong conflict of interest, and it's, you know, you, you know, even a child could see, you know, that this this is a conflict of interest. So Carl Rove basically took down a political opponent and didn't just take him down, threw him into prison and got him thrown into solitary for years. So uh, Steve, we're 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 hitting the the limits of our time here. Uh, the new movie is Atticus versus the Architect: The Political Assassination of Governor Don Siegelman. You are uh, playing this uh, throughout the South, it seems. Uh, tell us where people can watch this movie. And if they don't happen to be in one of the towns where it's playing in a theater, how how can they bring it to them or what can they do? Well, we're playing this Thursday, tomorrow, uh, or tomorrow morning at Netflix, uh, Net, Netroots Nation, excuse me. Mm-hmm. Um, and if uh, any if anybody is planning on being there, we're, uh, the movie will play at 1030 in one of the breakout rooms. And Great. we'd love to see you there. Uh, on Sunday, we're playing in Tuscaloosa at the Cobb Theaters. Uh, at three o'clock in the afternoon on Sunday. Okay. Um, uh, and we would love to see you come out for Matt Day on Sunday. On uh, the following Friday, uh, we'll be playing at the Princess Theater in Decatur, Alabama. Uh, and please uh, come out and see us. Um, but what about people who can't, who can't you know, go to Alabama to watch a movie or Netroots Nation for that matter? Are you, are you uh, offering DVDs? Is there you know, uh, rented on demand? Is it available through Amazon? I mean, are the normal distribution routes for these kind of things? Yes, it'll be on the normal distribution route uh, very soon. It will, uh, we're going to wait and play in theaters for, you know, it'll be in theaters for the next month, month and a half. I see. And then, of course, it'll be DVDs and uh, it'll be on pay-per-view and, uh, and distributed, you know, the typical ways. Uh, you know, red box, yeah, etc. Yeah, but, sounds uh, like a plan. Uh, Steve Wimberly you know, is the director and producer of Atticus versus the Architect: The Political Assassination of Governor Don Siegelman. The website Atticus A T T I C U S V as in versus the T H E Architect A R C H I T E T T E C T Atticus versus the the Architect dot com is the website. Steve, great work. Thanks for being with us today. Thank you so much. Yep, good talk. Coming up tomorrow, we'll have the latest news and information from Wall Street and Main Street, all points in between, plus the best of the rest of the news. And don't forget, democracy begins with you. Get out there, show up, participate, tag, you're it. We'll see you tomorrow. been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com.